0: I'm going to jump right into this morning's talk, and uh, as we did last week, I'm going to just start right away in the Scriptures and just have um, uh, part of the Scriptures as a backdrop to what we're talking about today. Uh, We've been in a series called the Apostles' Creed and walking through pieces of it, and this text, I think, will help us with the next section. It's Acts chapter 1, verse uh, 1, and we're going to read about uh, a dozen verses or so. It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bible or just want to follow along on the screen. Acts chapter 1. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, "Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my Father, my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John the Baptist, uh, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit." Then they gathered around him and asked, "Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel?" And he said, "'It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth.'" And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, "'Why do you stand here looking into the sky?' This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Let's just pause and pray for a second. Father, as we jump into this morning's theme and scripture and um, this piece of the creed that we have been walking through the last... um, month and a half, Lord, we are just, uh, we just invite you to be at work in us, invite you to speak, invite you to show us who you are, um, point this back to you in a sense, God. Uh, We long um, to just know you in a deeper and personal way, Uh, regardless if we've been following you for years uh, or if we're just exploring and searching. Uh, God, that's our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Amen. I love this passage. We're definitely not going to you know, talk about it fully. There's so much uh, that we could talk about this passage at the beginning of, of the book of Acts. Here's the, the gospel writer's Luke. He wrote one of the gospels, Luke, and uh, the gospel of Luke, and he tells us all about Jesus in that gospel. And then he writes a second Uh, book called the book of Acts, which uh, he continues to, he kind of like springboards from the life of Jesus and the resurrection and what we're going to talk about today, the ascension, and then springboards into that book in how Jesus and the power of the spirit works in in, in Jesus's followers. And the church just begins to grow and explode and and serve and, and do amazing things. But as Luke begins this book, this letter, his second book, the book of Acts, uh, it's something amazing that he claims. I don't know if you caught it. And, um, and it's not necessarily the part of the Holy Spirit, which is pretty huge. But twice in this introduction, he claims that Jesus leaves them. He claims that Jesus leaves them. Two times he tells us. Verse 2, he says, hey, I already wrote about all the things that Jesus did before, right? Before he was taken up to heaven, That's the first time he mentions it. And then later in verse 9, he said, after Jesus was talking uh, with the disciples, his last conversation with the disciples, Luke tells us he was taken up into heaven. He actually writes something similar at the end of his gospel in Luke. So three times Luke mentions that Jesus leaves. Jesus is taken up. And if you're just a normal person reading that, you might be saying, like, what the heck is going on? That's very strange, very unique. Um, People from all different walks of life have maybe theories about that, and some, uh, you know, um, kind of philosophies and ideas have hijacked this story uh, to kind of put into their own thinking. But as we come, as we're in this series or so, called the Apostles' Creed, we find a piece in the Creed that affirms what happens. This Creed that Christians um, affirmed and recited and uh, used as a framework for what they believed about God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And we find it in in the the section of the Creed about Jesus. We're going to read that section again today and then pause uh, just to the next one. And pause uh, at a certain point. So here's, here's this part of the creed again. Let's read it together. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He ascended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And I want to focus on this part. If you can go to that, that other slide, Beth. The, just the, this part of the creed... Uh, no, it's further down. It just uh, keep going. <laughs> uh, just that part of the creed that says, He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. On the third day he rose again. We talked about that last week. And then this part, he ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I love this part. It affirms what Luke says. Luke tells us what happened. The creed affirms it, that Jesus leaves and is going to come back. That's in practical ways, how we can talk about it. It's this core belief of the church that's called the ascension of Jesus. You know, the church celebrates certain really important moments in the life of Jesus, the advent of Jesus, um, the birth of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus. The church celebrates the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit. There's one day that the church uh, celebrates that often is like at the bottom of the barrel, like no one talks about it often. It's the, the day of ascension. That Jesus ascended, into heaven. Man, I don't know about you, but I asked the question, like, what happened in the day of ascension? And what's, been Jesus, what's Jesus been doing ever since? Like, Jesus rose from the dead. We clarified that last week, and we shared all kinds of reasons that are hard to explain the resurrection away. So we came to this discovery. The resurrection happened. Jesus defeated death. It was a physical resurrection. But here, both affirmed in the Creed and in, the, in Luke's words, Jesus is taken up into heaven. What a a phrase. How would you describe that to a friend? If they're like, uh, can you just like, man, I love Jesus' teachings. It's amazing. He died and rose from the dead. What does that, what's that? What do you mean he was taken up into heaven? And it brings up a whole bunch of questions because it makes us think, well, wait, didn't he already rise from the dead? What's the second part? It's different. The resurrection is one thing and the ascension is something else. Yeah, Jesus physically rose from the dead. But the ascension is his departure post-resurrection. He enters a different space. And it makes us ask the question, we're gonna just backtrack and answer what happened at the ascension. I think we gotta ask the question, what is heaven? Because it tells us that Jesus was taken up into heaven. And the way like, you know, really popular songs talk about heaven or we tend to sometimes think about heaven is like another place we're going to some place far away right heaven is often considered maybe some kind of like alternate location that we can maybe find but it really we have to ask the question if jesus went into heaven what is heaven and when we read about heaven in the scriptures and we look at like this Jewish background of what they believed heaven was and what Jesus would have talked about heaven, it's not another location like here we are here and if we walk long enough or take maybe a space shuttle or something, maybe we can arrive to heaven. You can't find heaven on a map. It's not in the stars. It's not some other galaxy. Jesus didn't go somewhere that we can find The way that the scriptures talk about heaven is literally God's space. That God dwells in a space called heaven. That he he exists at the same time that we exist, but in a different space. Now, if I'm already confusing you, let me let me throw this up. And I, I thought, you know, I thought it was really important to walk through this stuff. Why? Because our modern mindset, we ask these questions. We think about these things. We have conversations with our friends about this stuff. Well, if they ask you or you talk about it or you imply it. So I want to kind of put up um, two circles here and put them side by side. And I want you to consider that this circle is earth and this circle is heaven. That these two circles, these two spaces exist at the exact same time. That, that just like we are existing and functioning in earth, God functions and exists in his space called heaven. It's not far away. It's not another location. It's not a different you know, stratosphere. But God's space and our space actually exist side by side. And I want to put these circles together in the next slide. And maybe think about it this way. That earth And heaven simultaneously exist at the same time. And I I was thinking about how gravity works. And, and, you know, I know that I can can touch this and feel this and put my hands in the dirt and breathe the air. But I don't actually feel the fact, like, can touch gravity. But I know that gravity and all the things I can touch exist at exactly the same moment, the same time. They just work at different levels. They function in two different ways, but they exist at the same time. And no one here would say that gravity is irrelevant to the tangible stuff I can touch, right? We know that it affects like our physicality. And in the same way, heaven is relevant to what happens here on earth. What happens in heaven or what God is doing in his space is relevant to what happens in our space, I think C.S. Lewis tried to, tried to paint a picture of, and not, not in the most perfect way because there's no scientific way to describe this, but when he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and he imagined a world called Narnia where these, these four kids end up discovering and they, they, start, they start to realize that, oh, wait a second, this world and our world, how is it that they exist at the same time? And C.S. Lewis tried to paint a picture in his story, the Chronicles of Narnia, how these two worlds can interlock and somehow function at the same time and even affect each other. How what's going on in one world affects the other. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't go to another location, but he went to God's space, God's place, some people like to describe it as like the home office. <laughs> um, you know, Jesus is like Jesus is going to be working from the home office, <laughs> and uh, and and affect things that happen on Earth, kind of like maybe Earth's control room. But here, that, that's that's the idea. And the ascension obviously says more than that. But I think just to start the, to start this idea off, and the questions around it is like, well, what happened? How did this happen? And that's, part, that's how the scriptures describe heaven and earth and where Jesus went to. And we ask the question, well, what has he been doing since then? If Jesus moved into God's space post the resurrection with his resurrected body, then we ask the question, well, what has Jesus been doing? What has he been up to? Luke says that Jesus promises he's coming back, but that hasn't happened yet. So what's happening from this point to this point? What's Jesus doing in the meantime? There's a couple of things that we know for sure that are really encouraging to us. One, we know that Jesus is interceding for us. The scriptures affirm uh, over and over again, both in Jesus' words and later in the New Testament writings, that Jesus is interceding for us. We read it from Paul uh, in a great way in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, where Paul says, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, he was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. In other words, he's appealing on our behalf to God the Father. He's not pleading, but he's constantly presenting us. He's constantly bringing us before God the Father in heaven. He brings you up to God. He represents you to God. He's constantly looking out for you. Jesus continues to intercede for us. And that's one of the things he's doing constantly for us in this time period post the ascension. But something else is really amazing that takes place and it helps us understand who Jesus is. And the creed says it this way not just that he ascended but that he's seated at the right hand of the father he's seated at the right hand of the father that jesus has this authority at god's right hand and it means not just that jesus has gone to a, that he's gone to god's space but that jesus has gotten has gone to work he's working he's doing something he's he's interceding on our behalf and he is constantly exercising his authority. Where do, they, where do they get this from? Look at Psalm 110, verse 1. And you can read the whole Psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That little phrase there, this whole Psalm, actually, Psalm 110, it was the favorite, one of the, one of the early church's favorite Psalms to preach from. They used to love to preach from Psalm 110 because it gave them a, an idea, an understanding of who Jesus was. In fact, if you read the book of Hebrews, one of the Psalms that writer uses as a source for what he's saying is Psalm 110, because it, it, it helps them understand that Jesus is given authority at God's right hand. It's this high view of Jesus that he's, he's ruling, he's leading. And here, here's another image from the Old Testament that helps us understand this when we think about who Jesus is and all this authority he has. Go, just go to the next one in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. Look at this vision given to Daniel way back years earlier, talking about the Son of Man, someone like the Son of Man. Okay, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Just pause for a second. That phrase, coming with the clouds of heaven, some people have kind of looked at that and said, oh, Jesus, one day when he comes, he's going to come from the clouds. But that's a metaphor for a king that comes to rule. That's a metaphor of a king who will come and, and bring his authority and bring his, his reign and bring his rule and his values. So one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is, everlasting, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So we have this image here from Daniel 7 that gets fulfilled in who Jesus is. He is, he is one with authority. He's one who rules. He's one who reigns. And he exercises and executes his authority at God's right hand. When the creed affirms this, it points us back to the scriptures that help us see who Jesus is. And it's this one word that is so important for you and me every single day. And it's the word lordship. That the lordship of Jesus is vital for us to understand that he is Lord. The simplest way to describe Jesus, the simplest prayer, the simplest affirmation of our belief is this three words. Jesus is Lord. In other words, there is nothing that he is not ruler over. I love what one writer said. He says, there's no sphere, however secular, which Christ has no rights to. There's no sphere which his followers can ignore to obey. One writer, his name was, I think, Abraham um, Kuyper, Cooper, and he said, there's not one square inch of this world that when Jesus looks over it, he doesn't cry out, 'This this is mine, this is for God's glory. That his lordship is, part, is, is exactly who he is. Think of Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 to 11, that says this, Therefore God exalted him, this is talking about Jesus, to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the father this is the trajectory of jesus he comes pre-existing he comes into our world he doesn't take equality with god something to be grasped he takes the form of a servant of a human he dies obedient to death then god exalts him raises him up gives him authority that at the name of jesus every knee should bow every tongue confess that he is lord this this means something right this means that obedience makes sense. Like, it would be weird to just obey someone who just had some great teaching. It'd be, maybe we, you'd be hesitant to obey someone that's not full of love and authority. But Jesus has all that, and it implies that obedience makes sense. Jesus has authority. I've said this so many times, and you guys might get sick of me quoting Dallas Willard when he says, Jesus is the smartest guy in the universe. Smartest guy in the universe. He has authority. And when he talks, when he invites us to something, when he commands us, when he leads us, we are listening to the one who has all authority. He is Lord of our lives. He knows what he's talking about. He knows the end of the story. Jesus is Lord. And the ascension tells us that. Like it's not something we talk about that much. It's not something we really use that word as much. But the ascension tells us that Jesus is Lord. But you know what else it says? It says that you and me, we're not the savior of history. Aren't you glad about that? Like, aren't you glad I'm not the savior of history? I'm glad it's not in Nick's hands. I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm glad it's not in, you know, whoever. You know, even the smartest person in this room. I'm glad it's not in your hands. Because none of us can be the savior of history. You know, modernism, what started in the 18th century, the Enlightenment, this idea that that if we get smart enough, if we get better, if we get good enough, if we can have enough scientific discoveries, if we can do this, then, you know what their their thinking was? Then we can fix the world. That's what their thought was. How has that gone since the 18th century? The 20th century was the bloodiest century in all of history. As, As the 18th turned into the 19th century... It might have been an interesting idea until you hit the 20th century. We had two world wars. And wars all over the world. The most bloodshed in centuries. You know, most political leaders love to promise some kind of salvation. You know, whether it's the ones we like or the ones we don't like, they all kind of try and promise the same thing. We're going to fix this. We're going to make this happen. We're going to change this. We're going to do this. And it only exposes two things. It exposes their agenda. And at best, it exposes, they don't have everything it takes to fix this. Amen. And the ascension and the Lordship of Jesus tells us, we are not the saviors of history. I'm not the savior of history. And you know what? Even the church is not the savior of history. The ascension, here, read this quote. The ascension places a stop on human arrogance, including Christian arrogance. Because even a Christian, a follower of Jesus, can become arrogant in their own way to thinking, hey, you know what? God's on my side. I'm going to triumph. I've got all the answers. I'm going to implement this. I'm going to make this happen. Here's the reality followers of Jesus, we don't replace God. We serve God. We don't replace Jesus. We serve Jesus. So the ascension tells us this. We are not a triumphal, like a, like a sense of triumphalism. That we know will crack. But here's the other beauty of it. It means that we don't have to be led to despair. We don't have to crumble under despair. Because we know Jesus is Lord. And we know he is. The ultimate savior of history. And that's part of what it means. To call Jesus Lord. That's what the ascension teaches us. But I don't know about you. But it begs a question for me. And I'm sure you've asked this question. Or a friend of yours have asked this question. If Jesus is in charge. Why isn't everything fixed? Have you ever asked that question? Has someone ever kind of thrown that question at you? Hey, you're God, that's great you believe in God. If God is all powerful, have you ever heard that? If God is all powerful, then why is the world the way it is? If Jesus is Lord, we talk about the Lordship. Why is there still hardship? So we can talk about lordship, but I want to just be honest for a moment. I want to just explore this idea of hardship because you and I, all of us know here, as much as we, many of us have seen God at work in our lives, I think we'd all admit we've gone through hardship. We've gone through difficulty. We've seen some difficult things. We wish certain things would not have happened or not turned out that way. We all experience hardship, whether it's physical, relational, social, and there's that age-old question. If God exists... Why does suffering exist? If we, can, if we call Jesus Lord, then why doesn't he fix everything? In a book called The Reason for God, Tim Keller says, and it kind of affirms a couple of ideas that we might have shared before, we can often say, right, if suffering exists, God, then either God can't exist or God's not really all-powerful. And it's really a false assumption because when we ask that question, we're assuming we have the reason for why suffering exists. And we assume that there's some reason, some rationale that we're going to figure out in why I suffer or you suffer or people suffer. Of course, we can we can talk about evil in the world and sin. But I think that assumption of saying, if suffering exists, then either God doesn't exist or God is really not all powerful. We're making an assumption that we're claiming to be truth. And we're putting our faith or our blind faith in now an eventual rational outcome. And no one's figured that out yet. And here, here's a couple of common sense things. I know why suffering exists for me. I make stupid mistakes. That's part of it. Right? Like often, if I kind of like list 10 things that have gone bad in my life, I, I prob, probably seven of them at least are because I made silly mistakes. Right, and then I'm going to blame other people because if I list a few other things that have gone on in my life, I'm going to list other people who have made, you know, because of their mistakes, I'm suffering. Right? There, there are sometimes kind of those common reasons that it's either our fault or other people's faults, or people make mistakes and we get caught up in the consequence, or we've made mistakes and we get caught up in the consequence. Of course, sometimes we just we lie in bed and say, Jesus, can't you fix this? Popular country tune, Jesus, take the wheel. Just kind of. Very cheesy, sorry, but I just, it came to me. Um, those are common reasons why we suffer. So we can't blame anybody else, but at times ourselves or other people or society around us. But why, if Jesus is risen, ascended, and Lord, and He's interceding for us, why is suffering not erased? Completely. Like off the map. Never to happen again. Why any bombs or famine or hunger or poverty? Why not? I mean, we'd love that to happen. One thing is, the ascension is not the end. It's the beginning. The ascension is the inauguration of Jesus. It's the inauguration of Jesus. His rule That the eternal effects of sin have been destroyed at the cross and resurrection. But the temporal effects of sin in our lives will still pop up and creep up. And so at times, the effects of sin still stand in our world. And God's not a coercive God that forces everybody, at least in this time period, between ascension and the end, to just become robots. Just do exactly... God's not a string-pulling God. He doesn't force us. He loves us. And we respond to him in love. And in this period of his grace or age of grace, he's given us the opportunity to respond to him. And so here's the thing. Jesus promises a future renewal and restoration. We're going to talk more about that next week. But right now we live between the bookends. We live between the resurrection and the restoration. There's a restoration project and we'll allude to more next week, that God is is up to and doing called new creation. But we live in between the bookends of resurrection and restoration. It's kind of like when I had, you know, this is not the best metaphor, but when I got engaged to be married, right? I mean, marriage was coming. There was a day when I finally figured out, and sometimes I was, it took me long to figure this out, but I I finally figured out, Franca is the one for me. I'm going to marry this girl. There's really no... There's nothing, no reason that I should not marry this amazing girl. And so I made the decision, and I asked her to marry me. And we got engaged. Thanks, Nick. And we got engaged. Man, I mentioned him once in a message, and he just keeps talking. No, just um, <laughs> Sorry. So, <laughs> I love you. I love you. And So then, it's like, here I'm getting engaged, but the marriage is over here, right? And there's this whole time period. For us, it was about... I think it was like 16 months or something. And um, there was this time period. So in some ways, we're getting a glimpse of what marriage will be like. We're starting to make some decisions of what marriage will be like. We start to figure out, and in our imperfect ways, I told you it's an imperfect example, we start to figure out the hard way about how marriage will be like. But it's that time period where you're engaged to when you're married and that in-between period, those are two bookends. It's not fully what will take place, but it's partially happening, right? And that's a little bit about what heaven and earth feels like. I have two, two other circle examples here. So again, this is earth, this is heaven. Or let's make it a little bit different. This is kind of like our rule, this is God's rule, right? This is what humanity creates, this is what God creates, Right? These are these two, not now spaces, but two rules. And so I want us to consider this, that when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended, he inaugurated God's kingdom and God's restoration project. And if you go to the next slide, slowly, heaven is coming, like the rule of God is is, is taking over in a sense. And that happens as people believe in Jesus, start to live out the teachings of Jesus as the church serves. Um, as we, we just see God's activity. And that's why there's this little kind of space here. There's an overlap, right? And that's why many times you and I, we felt the overlap. There could be a, a moment where we're like, oh my gosh, this is like God's in control. It's like, it's like heaven, God, you did this. This is so good. Or maybe you've prayed for someone and they got well and they got, they, they healed. Or maybe a relationship got reconciled or a transformation in, in someone's heart and emotions. And you're like, that could not have been me. That must have been God. And in our community group on Friday, someone was sharing how, you know, in their work, sometimes they were struggling and they felt like certain ways that they responded. It was definitely the work of the hearts. These are moments in the overlap. Right? Have you guys experienced this or am I the only one? Right? Okay. But then there's sometimes it doesn't feel like the overlap. It's like we're still in the in-between phase. The overlap is awesome, but it's not the whole yet. And so when we ask the question, why is not everything fixed yet? Why is it not all great and perfect the way God desires? Why doesn't God just fully take over? It's because there's the trajectory. There's the arrow at the top. Heaven, the rule of God, will one day, maybe you can go to the next slide, will one day cover earth. The rule of God will one day be the only rule, the only value, the only kingdom. One day it will be like that. But it's not like that today. And because it's not like that today or not yet, we live in a between time where there's, there's delayed gratification, but there's guaranteed hope. There's delayed gratification, but there's guaranteed hope. Because Jesus is Lord and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. But in this in-between time, we question, we question. But the ascension says Jesus is coming back. The Ascension says what, what has started, what God inaugurated, one day God will fully fully bring to completion. And that's important for us to understand. So when you go through a struggle or maybe you know, with, with all your faith you've done certain things and you've seen God come and work. I've seen that happen in my family, and my life. I've seen just a step of faith to believe in, and God heal someone or God intersect in someone's life. And maybe you've experienced that. And that's amazing. That's that's part of what it means that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. His spirit's at work. God breaks into our reality all the time. But then we question when it doesn't always happen that way. Or when we wish it would be like that 100% of the time. And we realize, okay, wait a second. Am I, am I nuts? Is, this, is God not at work? Do I not have enough faith? And maybe there could be reasons for that. Maybe sometimes there are ways that God just says, hey, Dave, come on, just believe, seriously. You got no faith here. And that's possible. And sometimes it's consequential to my actions. But sometimes, sometimes we can recognize this perspective that we live in this overlap, but not the full. One day it'll take place. And as we we, we come to kind of maybe wrap this up and think about it today, the ascension and Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, If it's true, if lordship is true, but hardship also exists, then what do we do? How do we live? How do we pursue our faith? Well, here's a couple of things. One is this. We can reflect today what the full lordship of Jesus is. Not perfectly, because I'm not perfect, and you're not perfect, and we still struggle at times with with a sinful nature, but Jesus is Lord of our lives. And because he's Lord of our lives, we say, Jesus, this is how you long for me to live. And I can reflect that. So when we reflect the Lordship of Jesus, when we live in such a way that reflects his Lordship, what are we doing? We're reflecting heaven here. We're reflecting God's space in our space. We're reflecting glimpses of what the future will look like in the present. Does that make sense? And we can begin to show people what life with Jesus is all about, what it looks like. And sometimes, oh man, sometimes it's going to look miraculous. Sometimes God just breaks in and it's a miraculous moment and you just stand back and say, wow, God. I mean, literally, there was like no separation between your space and our space. That was just amazing. Sometimes you're going to see that in a healing or immediate transformation. But at times it will also, we can also live out the Lordship of Jesus and, and point people to the glimpse of what will take place when, when the full Lordship of Jesus is executed and restoration takes place. And then people begin to see the beauty and love and purpose of Jesus. And they say, "What is that?" That looks really good. It doesn't look like what I experience every day. What is that?" You say, "That's a glimpse of the Lordship of Jesus. That's a glimpse of the power of God. And that's our mission, right? We invite people to come to the lordship of Christ because we know he has the authority, the smartest person in the universe, and he knows what life like is like at its best. And we know he wins in the end. That's the beauty of that. But here's another thing. Can we really do this on our own strength? No. You can't. I can't. And the ascension... If, we, if I can just like do kind of directions, as Jesus, even though it's not up and down, but as Jesus went up, God's spirit came down. And Jesus promised, I, when I leave, I promise that I will send another, a comforter, one who will convict and lead and guide, right? And even in that passage we read in Luke, Luke chapter one, what's Jesus doing? He's preparing them for the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, listen, And Luke says, just before Jesus ascends or is taken into heaven, he tells the disciples, guys, do not not miss this. Wait for this. Wait for the power of God's Holy Spirit to come on you. And you will be witnesses, and you will grow in wholeness, and you will understand how I will be at work among you through my spirit. And so when Jesus ascended, he sent his spirit. And that's this shift that takes place. Even though we can say he's absent, but he's still present with us through the Spirit. I love that. And Jesus says, don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for this gift. And you and I, as followers of Christ, or even as we aspire to grow in Christ, we need the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That's why Jesus said at the end, one of his last words in Matthew 28, he says, I will be with you always. How would he be with us always? If he went into God's space? If they didn't see him anymore? It's through the power of his Holy Spirit. And that's for you and me. And we're going to need, we need the Holy Spirit to live in between the ages. Right? We need the Holy Spirit to live between resurrection and restoration. Why? Because there's just an overlap and it's not full. And we're going to need the Holy Spirit to be at work in us. And here's this last little bit. And I want to encourage you with this as we close. You and I, even though I describe these two spaces, we can stay connected to heaven. We can stay connected to God's very space. In fact, Jesus modeled this for us. You know what he called it? He called it prayer. What did we find Jesus doing? He went early in the morning or late at night or different times, and he spent time with his father. Prayer is, in a sense, a gateway to God's very presence in a mysterious way, prayer connects us to heaven. Why did Jesus say, where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there in their midst? Why? Because when we come together, when we, we worship like we did this morning, I, I, I'm not saying you know, that all of God's glory and presence was just bang in this room, but I can tell you when I was worshiping, I felt and I knew that I was connecting with my Father. I knew that there was, in a sense, a breakthrough between heaven and earth that in that moment of worship and prayer, worship, we get this opportunity to interlock with heaven. That that's his promise. There's another promise in James chapter four that says, When you draw near God, he will draw near to you. What an amazing promise. That means when you come close to him, you experience a piece of heaven. You experience part of God's space. Maybe not in its fullness. But you get to experience a piece of God's space. God's always breaking through, if I can use a bad metaphor, the layer. He's always breaking through the layer. He's always wanting us to hear him and experience him and know him. And when we come to him in prayer, and and this is why Jesus, when he when his disciples said, Jesus, can you teach me how to pray? What did Jesus what was Jesus' prayer? Says, our Father in heaven, in your space, our Father, who's in his space, heaven, Like we worship you, hallowed be your name. And then what did Jesus say? May your kingdom come, may your will be done, where? On earth earth, as it is in heaven. Why did Jesus teach his disciples to pray that? Because when we pray like that, there's this breaking into our space. And if I can use different words, it's Lord Jesus, Lord God, I pray that, that your kingdom and your will would happen in our space just like it's been decided in your space. Right, Lord, that that my life in this space, in this realm, in this reality, would reflect what you are what you are doing and leading and creating in your reality. We call, we can call it heaven and earth, but Jesus is teaching us to pray, and when we pray, to believe that we can interact with heaven and we can see glimpses of God's values and life and purpose and power show up in our space. Lord, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think prayer, when we grow in our, in, our, in our understanding and practice of prayer, we get to see this almost uniting of heaven in glimpses, in pockets, in overlap, but we get to see it. Isn't that encouraging? Let's stand as we close in prayer today. If you're familiar with the story of the Lord of the Rings, I think it's in the third book that um, Gandalf has kind of has been away. The wizard, the strong wizard in the story, and Sam, one of the key characters, he sees Gandalf again, and he's so surprised. He tells Gandalf, he says, "I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead because," and so he's confused. And here's the question he asks. I'm going to just start it this week and end the narrative next week. He asks, is everything sad going to be undone? That's what he asks him. He's so surprised. He's like, I thought you were dead. Now you're alive. And his first question is, is everything sad going to become undone? And I think that's our question when we think about the lordship of Jesus. There's more to the story in the Lord of the Rings. There's more to the story as we walk through the creed. But I know that that's part of our question. But as we come to discover the beauty of the lordship of Jesus, that's part of the promise. But here in the meantime, we get to follow him. We get to to live under his rule and reign. We get to say yes to him and see glimpses of heaven, even in our own lives. I challenge and encourage you to, to step into that. Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you for, you know, we, we, we probably rarely use that word, the ascension. Rarely comes up in our conversation about our faith. But God, we affirm it today. We affirm that it happened. We affirm that Jesus, your son, resurrected And went into your space, heaven. And his ruler and Lord has been. God, we say we're so grateful for that. It gives us such a different perspective. May we be people um, who say yes to the lordship of Jesus. May we be people who believe, even when it's hard, that the lordship of Christ is so much better to respond to in all aspects of life. God, when those moments in our decisions, relationships, in our finances, in our work, in our home, and our neighborhoods, God, come up when we discern that following the Lordship of Jesus might take a different path, God, may we trust that the authority of Jesus matters, that the authority of Jesus is is priority, that the authority of Jesus makes sense, that the authority of Jesus is true, may we say yes in those moments. And may we, Lord, in those moments experience a glimpse of your rule, a glimpse of heaven, a glimpse of your reality, a glimpse of your kingdom that will encourage us and help us to see, yes, that we can experience you today, but that one day there's a greater guaranteed hope that is coming. May we see glimpses of it today as we follow the Lordship of Christ. And God, even when hardship comes, Lord, we're thankful that we have your Holy Spirit. We're thankful that there are moments you break in and show us your power and that we can come to you in prayer that heaven and earth can interlock. God, we, we say yes to this and say thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.